Welcome to the Freedom Chasers podcast, where we bring you interviews and discussions that share the stories, successes, goals, and dreams of real estate agents and real estate investors pursuing a life of purpose and freedom. Today, we are here with James Brown. He is the co-founder of Real Home Solutions in Colorado. James, we are super pumped to have you on the show. Let's kick it off with a story. Could you just tell us one of your craziest real estate stories or transactions that you've experienced thus far? Craziest? Um, well, let's go with one of my favorites. Um, so it was the first first deal we did um, with my company. Um, this was an out-of-state deal. We, we do deals all over the country. Um, we had an agent that couldn't buy a house for himself. We partnered up with with our partner in Minnesota. The agent went out, found a duplex. We brought our investor in, bought the duplex for him. He lived in one side. And he, within, within two years, was able to buy that duplex, uh, get his own financing and buy it. And at the same time, he was able to buy a single family home with his wife. Um, so... Within two years, he you know had this job, was able to get a loan, house, and a duplex with you know two renters in there, all within that short amount of time. And I think he walked into it with like fifty grand equity because we we set him up you know with a good deal for him to buy it. Um, and now so he many actually, questions, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> so. I mean, first of all, this sounds like just an amazing story. Like kudos to you for buying houses for your clients. But you're, I mean, if, if I'm getting the story right, you're buying a house for a client that doesn't have a job as an investment. Like just kind of walk us through that thought process. Give us more depth on that story. Yeah. Oh yeah. We could dive in for sure. Um, so this, it's, it's a rent to own program, a lease with an option to buy. Um, ideally, they've got a job. You know, we've we've done a deal where people were moving to another area um, and didn't have jobs lined up, but they had enough savings cushion. But like in this case with with Eric, um, he just he needed a full two years to get get a loan, you know, standard lending practices. Um, so he just needed more time. He didn't have anything wonky with credit or anything, but we can deal with that kind of stuff, too. But so, yeah, he wasn't able to get a loan. We got him into the property. Normally it's just a, you know, single family home, something cookie cutter that, that anybody would want. But in this case, he picked out a duplex. So. Super cool. So essentially this isn't something that you just did just for this guy. This was a part of a strategy. And I know we're going to cover this strategy later in the episode, but yeah, super cool that you were able to help him get in that investment. And that also launched him into his single family home. Take us back to the beginning of your journey. Like, what were you doing before real estate and what you got you in? Well, I was a graphic designer for my entire career, like basically straight out of college, had a degree uh, in that field and, and had a business built around that. Um, it wasn't really getting me where I wanted to be. So I was getting close to turning 50 and I'm like, man, I got to do something. And I'd always had my eye on real estate investing. And, but all I really knew was, you know, buying regular rentals at the time. And in fact, my dad was the one probably when I was in college, was like, you should buy a duplex and live in one side. And great advice. I didn't do that, but I did 
buy a house with my brother and got the ball rolling, you know, so and kind of pivoted off that, which has really helped, um, you know, looking forward, being able to start my business. I was able to sell my last house and, you know, use that cash to get things going. But um, yeah, man, I, I, went, I went down the rabbit hole when I started really getting serious, started getting on bigger pockets, listening to their podcast. There's a lot of good info there. Um, but and going to networking events and lunch and learn kind of things where I was learning all these different investing strategies. It, it did take me like a couple of years to really figure out which direction I wanted to go. Um, and, and just deciding like on that house that I own, whether to keep that as a rental and then buy something else and do the, the nomad investing um, where you just buy one primary after the other and keep the originals. Love this. Okay. Let's dive into this for a second here. So, because I think this is such an underrated strategy. So essentially what you're talking about is like systemic planned house hacking, right? So if we define the, the strategy of the duplex that you're buying, you're essentially buying one, you rent out the other side, you're cash flowing, or at least you're living for free. And you're talking about essentially maybe once a year or however long you need to live in those units before it's legal to, to get the next one. So you're thinking about over a five or 10 year period, you're going to own five properties that once you move out of them, cash flow and essentially pay themselves off in the end. Yeah. Yeah. I tell people, especially younger people that are like in their twenties <clears throat> that are okay with moving, you know, they might not have a, a significant other and kids that they have to move. It's still doable, but it, that can get old. But if you're young and you don't mind having roommates and at least have like a two bedroom or more and just keep doing that, um, using that ability to get low down payment, low, f you know, financing rates as a primary residence every year. So like I said, I, I tell people like, if that's all you do, you're going to be fine. You're going to be able to retire, you know, early. Yeah. That's really all early. All you have to yeah. do. Yeah. I'd like to get, get your take on something. So, cause I believe that the wealthiest people generally ascribe to the notion that you rent the place that you live and you own the places that you rent out. And because when you look at like, if you own a million dollar property, that's a million dollars of investment. Well, yeah. I mean, agents are told and they tell their clients that buying your primary residence is an investment. And I think that's true from the standpoint that a lot of times, you know, properties go up in value. But it's not an investment in the sense that if you own a million dollar property or $400,000 property, that equity is sitting there unusable. And so an investment property, you get the rental income and you get the growth and appreciation. So what are your thoughts on like, okay, someone is single, probably pretty easy to do. They're married. You know, what's your advice to them? You know, as far as how, how far should they take the strategy? The, the nomad investment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, till, till you're tired of it yeah. <laughs> and, and you, you've built Take up the grind. Yeah. I mean, I, I know people that, that, uh, actually, uh, Mindy Jensen from bigger pockets, she's been house hacking with a family, <laughs> you know, doing that same, same thing and they're all on board, you know? Yeah. So I, yeah, I say just start early and just go until you're like, ah, I don't want to move anymore. And, but then there's other, other models of investing. You don't have to do that. It's, it's probably the easiest 
way to do it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the hard part too, is a lot of times the cash flow, I mean, I live in California, so cash flow is very tough. Other states, it's a lot easier, but you're going to live in a bad area if you want good cash flow in California, if you can even get that. So what I told my wife, once I figured this out is, okay, if, cause she wants to own the primary residence. So if we're going to own our primary residence and we're not going to house hack, then we're going to, we're going to use a different strategy, which is we're going to buy houses that we have to fix up. Like if I'm going to own a primary, it's cause I'm going to make two, 300 K on a rehab and an equity gain. So that like, to your point, there are other ways, but you know, I mean, if you could use your primary residence as a form of cash flow in a house hack or as a equity growth, I mean, it, it can exponentially change your trajectory, particularly because you're usually never paying taxes on your primary. Yeah. A lot of benefits there. Yep. Totally. So, so tell us, take us through the transition of becoming a graphic designer. Like obviously your dad's telling you about stuff, but what, what kind of kicked off that shift? Just I, the clock was ticking. I was like, man, I ha- I don't have any rentals and I'm going to be turning 50 soon. I'm like, I, I need to get back on that horse. You know, 08 threw things off. I, I bought a house in 06 and then <laughs> the market just tanked. And I was like, ah, oh, I don't have any equity in my house to leverage. Um, and then have enough savings and, and income to like, just go gobble up rentals at the time. So I'm like, well, it's time to figure this out. Like there's gotta be other, other ways. Um, so, you know, like I said, I went down the rabbit hole, started discovering all these different ways to invest, um, get, getting the plan for me. It's different for everybody, right? Like I'm single. Um, I don't have a wife and kids, so. I've got a lot more flexibility and tolerance to do whatever, you know, and I'll say flips. I, that's a job to be clear, right? Like, and it's risky and it's time consuming. There's a lot of moving parts. Some people love it. And I think I would like it if that's all I was doing. Um, But I think there's better uses of my time um, and risk tolerance too. So it's a good way to, to build cash flow if, if you can, you know, hit home runs or at least good base hits consistently and then use that to invest in, you know, passive income. Yeah. So James, you said something really important. I think there, you said you found something that worked for you specifically. So like, how long did it take for you to find what was good for you? And like, what strategies did you try that didn't work for you? Um, so Toby and, and myself, my business partner, um, you know, we looked at a lot of different things and we still keep our eye on things that, that can work together, um, that aren't going to suck up too much extra time like that's time management is is a tough thing when you're going different directions so kind of focusing on on one or two things is is helpful but um we started out with through a expensive mentorship um where the strategy is calling for sale by owners trying to find ones that are willing and able to sell to you on terms you can get them the highest price um and then you go and you find a tenant buyer, you know, somebody that can't get financing. Um, but you got to find somebody that fits that exact property um, that has some money to put down. It's, it's a difficult um, thing. 
and and admittedly i was not good on the phone i'm sure um but it's also a numbers game like because most people most for sale by owners have to sell they need to cash out so finding the ones that don't have to and that can wait to get paid out for you know a higher price you know that that you have to build trust and then you know you're cold calling somebody they're like who who the hell are you what what's a scam you're trying to run on me you know telling me you can get this higher price for me it was just eh, felt like i was beating my head against the wall so we discovered you know what we're doing now it's like oh it's just so much it's so much better so much yeah better. <laughs> yeah to continue tim's question the word for you is an interesting scenario because obviously it could imply like it's a personality fit and it could imply it's easier. It's more natural. Like when you're describing that, like, can you describe how you knew that this was a better path? Was it, was it more of like an ease or was it more like, Hey, like my personality feels way more comfortable with this type of approach. Yeah. I mean, like flipping, like I said, a lot of moving parts. I didn't, just didn't have the the stomach for, for the risk and all the moving parts of that. And I knew it was a job. Like I'd heard other people say, that's a job. That's not investing. And that's not what I wanted to do. Um, note, flipping notes, that kind of thing. Such a numbers game, kind of like just a little bit more advanced. I was like, oh, I'm not ready for that. You know, um, I wasn't in a position to be able to, especially once I transitioned from my kind of full-time job into what we're doing now, like I couldn't get a a loan to do a regular rental. I'm actually a good fit for our program. Right. You know, (laughs) it's it's funny because yeah, if, if, and when I'm ready, I could do it. You know, I know, I know how it all works, you know? Um, and I, you know, it's kind of interesting. Like I got into it f- for myself to build wealth for myself and, you know, change my life. Um, what I've discovered with what we do, like I'm helping other people change their lives, both tenant buyers that want to be homeowners and can't, I can help them. I'm helping agents and lenders that I'm working with. So they're all winning. And then investors that I'm helping, you know, they're building wealth at the same time. So like you got, you know, five wins when you include myself. And so it's just like, it makes me feel really good. Um, so it's not just a numbers game and, and I'm not screwing anybody with what I'm doing. So helping build everybody out up. So that, that, that touches me, you know. Absolutely. That's a fantastic point. So do you think you get more enjoyment from the amount of income that you're producing or, or do you think you get more enjoyment from um, the fulfillment of helping all these people? I'd say fulfillment, especially at, at this point. I mean, the income is, is we're building this, you know, like we've been in a couple of years and it's, it's gaining traction. Um, but it's not, not filling the bank account, making me rich now, but we're building a basis and uh, you know, helping people. So that's what keeps me going for sure. When, when I'm, I'm helping other people and I can see the light, I can see that there's, you know, success down the road. Yeah. Which totally leads me into a thought of 
like how how is it that you define success? So on this podcast, there's two major things that we really focus on, which is basically freedom, which it sounds like is a part of what you're, what you're after, and purpose. So if you would define your definition of success and and maybe how, how you feel about freedom and purpose, reminds me of you know stuff Tony Robbins talks about, like happiness comes from progress. And so I, I'm making progress and that brings me happiness um, and gratitude. And part of that is the, you know, the fulfillment of helping people um, and being grateful that I, I have the ability to help people. Um, but yeah. Making progress. Like, you know, I was kind of, I was stagnant with, with what I was doing before. Now I'm, you know, I'm on a freaking podcast. Like, before I would have been like, Oh, that seems scary. You know, now I'm like, I've done quite a few, you know, I, f- I feel comfortable and I'm, I'm, you know, letting other people know how they can benefit from this. Um, so the, the personal growth, that's a huge thing that I didn't expect when I got into real estate. I, and it's a people part, people business, right? That, that kind of took me by surprise. I just thought, Oh, it's numbers, a bunch of people scratching for you know whatever but it's it's a people business it's a team team effort for all this you you can't really do it by yourself there's always multiple people involved in in anything you do um yeah okay this is great so i mean you're talking about a lot of mindset stuff so like let's kind of dig into your mindset now like when you get when you got started like what kind of resources did you use to develop a mindset that takes you from somebody that wouldn't think about doing a podcast and now you've done multiple, right? So like what, what did that journey look like? You know, going to in-person meetups where weekly, where you got to get up in front of the group and introduce yourself and say what you're looking for, what you can do, you know, that, that was way out of my comfort zone. And I got better at that. And it's gotten better as I've kind of, you know, dialed into my niche and, and can speak, you know, on a, a professional level where before I was like, I'm here to learn, you know, like I didn't have much to say. Um, but now I feel a lot more comfortable doing that. Um, and, you know, I've, I've really, I've gotten in into, you know, stoicism. So, you know, I got the daily stoic, a lot of people, a lot of real estate people, you know, have that book and follow, follow Ryan, Ryan holiday on Instagram. That's what I do. Um, uh, the investor mindset podcast. I don't know if you guys heard of that. Um, Steven Pesavento started that he's more focused on, on, um, multifamily or solely focused on that. Um, but the podcast is about mindset and what it takes to stick to it in real estate you have to have a strong mindset because there's a lot of stuff working against us, you know, <laughs> as you guys know. So, um, yeah, going to Tony Robbins, you know, the virtual one, seen him live. He came and um, basically did his um, Unleash the Power Within in like a one day thing at um, this EXP build conference. It's like, that was amazing. Um, so, yeah, I just, I read a lot of books and, Try to keep that mindset strong. Try to get out of my own head and get out of my own way. <laughs> I think back into stoicism, what attracted you to that thought pattern and what are some of the benefits that you got in going through that learning curve? Well, you know, I kind of 
heard about a lot of people getting into meditation. Um, and I was always a big fan of Sam Harris. Um, he's got the making sense podcast now, and then he's got the, the waking up app and he, he has a very interesting take on meditation. He's not all woo woo, you know, all the dogma of some of the, the traditional meditation. He just kind of cuts through the, the BS of all that, which really, you know, rings true for me. So I started going through his meditations and that kind of led into discovering stoicism. I'd heard of it, but until, until I got the Ryan holiday book, the daily stoic, I didn't really know exactly what it was. But now that I I'm reading those on a daily basis, it just, it helps, helps give some, some levity to challenges. Cool. And so that's where the benefit comes is essentially like going into this type of thought pattern is allowing you to feel a little bit more comfortable with maybe uncomfortable situations. Like is it, in a sense, is it lowering anxiety for you or what would be the main benefits? Yeah. It's kind of like, it's different ways to, to, to look at, at a situation. And it's just, it's, you know, it's mindset. Mindfulness is kind of the core of it, right? Just being, being aware. Oh, I'm feeling anxious. Why is that? Is there, is that a real thing? Like, why, why should I be anxious? Um, just kind of stepping back and going, it's going to be okay. <laughs> like, just, just roll with it. And, you know, I, the other thing that, that kind of reminds me, like, we all make mistakes. And people relate to you better if you make mistakes. I mean, I've, I've heard of people, like, intentionally, like, throwing in a, mistake. Like, I don't want to be manipulative like that, but you know, being relatable is, is, uh, is a powerful thing. Yeah. Well, and I think like, as, as like, I mean, cause obviously you're producing content, you're on podcasts, you have some things that you're teaching and obviously we produce content as well. Like you don't have to like intentionally produce mistakes. I mean, Tim and I make tons of them all the time. We just won't edit it as many out maybe. <laughs> you know, So it's actually, we, we have a hard time editing them all out when we try to edit them all out. So, um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the same thing like going on Facebook live. If you've never done that, Oh, well, there's no training wheels. Like you're just out there. There you go. Yeah. So you have to get comfortable with that, which it takes a while. Maybe you never get totally comfortable with it. Right. Well, it's interesting too, like when you think about personality, because I love personality study. And so usually like, you know, in history, the victory is always written by, or the history is always written by the victors. And, and a lot of times in content creation, I feel like the content creation is always written by the extroverts. But when you look at like deep thought patterns and really transcendent thoughts, it's typically more introverts that come up with those levels of insights. And so if you have the introverts are, are never the ones on the podcast and doing the content creation, because they're too afraid of, you know, the extroverted thing of being on a podcast, then a lot of the insights in the world just won't get shared. So, you know, kudos to you for, you know, breaking some of these fears and, and, and getting out there and creating some content. Um, all right, great, man. So let's, let's kind of dive a little bit deeper into the strategy now. So you do lease options, right? So let's just kind of just introduce the audience to the idea of the strategy and then we'll kind of dive deeper into it as we go. Yeah. So, you know, we've find people that with our program that have 10% of the purchase price to put down, but they can't get financing from a bank for whatever reason that is like, 
um, 1099 job, um, ITIN, meaning like they're from another country. They don't, don't, ha- don't have a social security number yet. Um, they don't have, you know, job history. They don't have credit history. Um, they just need time. Um, there's all sorts of credit issues that can come up. Um, as long as they're fixable, like, you know, people go through divorce and medical bills, like COVID, things like that, throw people off. They may be good with money, but some life happened to them and it's, it's something fixable, you know? So we, we take a deep dive into that and, you know, find people that have a good chance of getting a loan. And that's, that's really the key to Rentone. Rentone has been given a bad name by putting people on a bad spot where they can't buy that house. Um, so we kind of flip the switch. Like um, I think it's industry average is like 20% of people actually buy the house. Ours is like the complete opposite of that at 80% or more can buy the house. Um, so as long as they've got some money to put down some skin in the game, uh, which goes to the investor on the other side of this equation, um, then we've, then we dive in. Um, but we get that story, figure out what, what's going on, you know, what, what it takes to get that loan in the future. Um, and then we match them up with an investor, um, probably be putting a fund together at some point. Um, but at this point it's just one, one buyer, one investor and go buy a house for them. Everyone who listens to our show knows Tim and I are passionate about obtaining financial freedom through real estate investing. We also know that everyone's situations and goals are different. And while there are programs out there that show you a path to financial freedom, many of these programs are just too cookie cutter and don't take your personality, situation, and desired outcome into account. Think about the number of times that you've watched a guru online and tried to do the exact same thing as they did but had nowhere near the same results. You are not alone. When I got started, I was continually paying for courses and getting only partial results until I discovered the path that made sense for me. The results prove this out. Most online course creators have let us in on their dirty secrets that 90 to 95% of their students never complete their course and achieve their desired outcome. This is not something that we're okay with. The benefit of working with Tim and I is that we are interviewing between 5 and 20 people every single week. We have accumulated hundreds of seven-figure strategies and got an inside scoop from these successful entrepreneurs. We're able to work with you to pick the strategy that will best fit and then help you create the custom plan to take you quickly into financial freedom. As a former math teacher, I always taught my students that the fastest way between two points is a straight line. If you want to get rid of the many curves in the road that can make the journey longer and more costly, then go to coaching.freedomchaserspodcast.com and book a call with us, and let's get you on a straight line path to freedom. Which is super cool because essentially you're, you're taking the 80% that want the American dream. They want to own a home and they're currently not being provided for by the system and giving them that opportunity. So on that side, it's super cool, I guess, to play, you know, maybe devil's advocate or to explore the risk of something you're essentially taking on the buyers that traditional lending has failed. But one of the reasons they failed them is because they've determined the risk is too high. You know, either they're, you know, new to the country in this case, or they, they have credit issues. So there's some indication that they're a higher risk to not pay the loan back for one reason or another. So in doing this, you're buying the property or at least the equitable interest in the property from the seller through an, I'm assuming some sort of installment sale. And then you're turning around and selling that, that interest to the end buyer. Is that correct? 
So we're just buying properties that are on market on the MLS. Okay. Um, and are you like fully buying them, paying cash or getting a loan and you're, you're closing on them and the seller has been cashed out? Yeah. The, yeah. That seller. Cause like, like that old method where we were calling for sale by owners, most of them need to cash out or they're just like, who are you pound sand? You know? So in this case, we've got an investor that totally understands this whole model and wants a deal. We basically have that investor buy that property off the MLS. It can be off market too. Um, or we might run into a seller that's, you know, wants to do that, but the way we do it, we're not relying on that, you know? So investor buys the house and then leases, leases it back to that tenant buyer until they can exercise their option. Yeah. And you're essentially playing the middleman between the investor and the, and the tenant. So the investor holds the bag then as far as the risk goes. So essentially if this buyer doesn't perform, this tenant buyer doesn't perform, then does the investor have to foreclose or is it truly like a rent to own situation where they just, they rent till they can exercise an option to purchase? Exactly. Yeah. It's just, it's a lease with an option for them to buy. Um, but again, like we, by screening them up front, which other rent owned companies don't do, they kind of leave it up to that buyer to figure that out. We, we want to get with a lender right away, get it in writing. Like what, what do they need? What boxes do they need to check off so that they can get a loan? Um, do that up front. That that stacks the deck in the favor of them actually being able to do it. Plus, if they're putting ten percent down or more, um, that's skin in the game. It's non-refundable for that that buyer, right? So we want to make sure we, you know, have a game plan for them so they don't lose that. Um, investor wins. If, if that comes down to it, but we don't, we don't want to end up in that position, you know, option contracts have a deadline. So we like to give the buyer plenty of time. And, you know, if we need to extend that and the investor is okay doing that, we'll do that. Either there's a fee involved or, or the investors just like, yeah, just, let's just extend that. As long as they're getting cash flow, why not? Right. Absolutely. So I wanted to get clarity here. I'm pretty sure I'm following you 100%, but I want to make sure the audience is following you as well. So you play the middleman here. You find a tenant that has 10% down. They're looking for a property. You connect them with an investor, and then you go buy something on the MLS. And then the way you are profiting here is through buyer commission, or is there other things on top of that? Or, or where is your profit coming from? Yeah, it's splitting the pie up is is different for every deal kind of depending on where the, the buyer came from. Um, so there's buy side commission and then investor kicks us back a, a portion of that option fee. So however, however we have to split that up and keep everybody happy. Love it. And so when someone puts 10% down, is that truly marked as a down payment on the purchase or is the 10% their option fee? The 10% of their op option fee, non-refundable option consideration if, you get the exact terminology. So yeah, it's non-refundable, but when they buy they're owed. Yeah. So that's why I like 10% because it should cover, you know, a three and a half or 5% down FHA loan down payment plus closing costs and maybe a little extra. 
which I think is such a great way to structure it. And I know none of us are attorneys, so we're not claiming anything we're about to say is legal advice, but it seems to me on the surface that making it the option fee is a much safer thing for your investors because marking it as a down payment would probably imply they'd have to get that back if they don't perform, but making it the option fee that then converts to a down payment likely protects the investor from having to give that back if they don't perform. So I think that's super simple. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a nice insurance plan where you don't get that. If you're, if you have a regular renter that has a small security deposit and, uh, and doesn't have an intention of buying the house, they're just, they've got that renter's mindset where in this case, you know, they, they want to own, they've picked out the house that they want to own. They're living in it. They're maintenance and repairs. We, we ask that the tenant buyer handle that. You don't get that with a regular renter, right? So, um, triple net of single family. It right? Really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so okay. diving into this a little bit deeper and just to continuing to get clarity. So essentially your profit in running this model is the buyer commission plus a percentage of the option fee. And then the profit for the investor is essentially, so they buy the property and they're getting the, but the option fee converts to down payment. So that essentially that, or maybe some of it does. So their profit is in, I'm assuming, the spread of the monthly rents. What what else? How else are they profiting? Yeah, so they're getting the cash up front, but they that's owed. So then they're getting cash flow, which we build in. Um, it's all determined ahead of time before even closing on the house, which is nice. We're like a regular rental. You're guessing at how much that monthly rent's going to be, hoping you're not going to have vacancy. So in this case, you've already got your cash flow, f- flow figured out um, and the purchase price in the future. So whatever appreciation. Um, so, you know, the, the, the investor buys it at today's price, right? But we have an agreement for the buyer to buy it at tomorrow's price, which should be going up. You know, it's been going up a lot. Um, so we've we've been doing it where... The investor still makes money at, you know, like a six, seven, eight percent appreciation rate. But, you know, our market in Denver has been going up 18 percent in Metro. You know, that's going to come down. But so as long as the investors kind of got this guaranteed um, purchase price in the future and they're still making money, they're happy. And and there's some room for the market to come down for the buyer. Um you know, that deal with Eric in Minnesota, he walked into 50 grand equity because it would just it kept going. Took off. And the yeah, investor yeah. was still happy. Everybody was happy. He was really so happy. So let's talk about, let's talk about the possibility of the market going down since we know that is definitely a possibility. So let's run a, a fake scenario here and we'll use smaller numbers just for sake of ease. So let's say you guys buy a property at a hundred thousand. You're probably turnarounding and selling it to end buyer at what, a 120, 150, something like that. Maybe like a, 20% markup or somewhere in that ballpark? Well, like if we're doing six or 7% each year, you know, it'd be like, you know, 106 in year, year one. And we also ask them to lease for at least 12 months in a day. That way the, the investor doesn't get hitched with uh, short-term capital gains. Um, but most people that are going to do this program, they need 12 months anyway. So right. it's not yes. really an issue. So let's say someone buys one for, so you guys buy one for 100, you're given option at 106 and I'm assuming there's like escalators depending how long, 
what happens if the market goes in a four-year tank? Or let's say it's an 18-month recession, but it takes seven years for the market to recover to current prices, like maybe something similar to like 2008. How does this model, how do you foresee this model playing out if we're heading into a recession? Well, we could just extend the lease, you know, and let, let the market turn. That's that's the easy, easy answer right there. Um, if, uh, if it, you know, went below what it was normally doing, um, you know, the tenant buyer, if they could come up with some extra to cover an appraisal gap, if that was an issue, that's their decision, right? I mean, they can always walk away from the, the option fee, but most aren't going to want to do that. Um, there's, yeah. So it seems like the investor is pretty well fortified against risk. It's it's really the buyer that would really need to kind of do their due diligence because they're essentially on the hook for the ten percent fee. If market goes down, they they could be in for a long ride, you know. Or like you said, they'd have to pay the pay the difference. Yep. Yeah, and we you know no one has a crystal ball, so we're That's we're right. all looking at it together. <laughs> um, I like to have somebody in in both courts. So actually, on, in our contracts, we have you know place for an agent or an attorney to sign for the tenant buyer, somebody to sign for an investor. Um, so both both sides are covered. Um, you know, we've we've had a tenant buyer take our contract to an attorney. That it was funny because <laughs> we heard about it later after she she'd gone to him. And we've had multiple attorneys look ours over and give suggestions. Um, and he took all of her suggestions. He's like, okay, crazy lady. Like <laughs> this is, <laughs> you're asking for way too much, but he, you know, I came back and he's like, well, here's a few changes to make it a little bit more balanced. So, so it's not weighted too much on the investor side or the buyer side. So right now it's nicely weighted. That's super cool. And obviously that's, where it's all at, you know, like if, if each side's had, got good representation, you know, then it, it's a, it's a fairly balanced thing. And I mean, not to underscore the value of people being able to buy a house that couldn't buy a house, like access to the long-term appreciation, maybe income opportunities of property. Like even if you buy something and it goes down, as long as you have it for a long time, you're good. I think Brandon Turner, who's obviously bigger pockets, you know, uh, was on the bigger pockets podcast for 10 years. Like he bought right before the market crashed like worst possible time and ended up being just fine. You know, so if, if they, if they can hang on long enough, it'll end up being a good deal. Yeah. Yeah. As we know, <laughs> real estate continues to go up over time. So like I bought my house, <clears throat> my house in 06. Uh, I was like, Oh crap. But I, I was able to just make my payment and eventually it came up and I, I walked away with equity and <laughs> Looking back, I'm like, oh, I sold it in 2019 thinking that was the top of the market. And it just kept going. Now I, I look at what it's worth. I'm like, ah. Oh. But I was able, I still had equity and I was able to use that to get my business off the ground. So it, that really has sunk in the power of real estate. Yeah. And don't be afraid to cash out on an increase too, right? Like it, it it's cool to see that it's still gone up, but you made money. So just be happy that you made money and you ran away with it because, you know, every once in a while you could have that opportunity to make money and not take advantage of it. And that's not as fun. Um, we won't, <laughs> we won't get into details there. Um, 
Um, there's some very specific statistics that you mentioned earlier, and I think they're incredibly impressive and they're accurate as far as I'm concerned. So I want to dig into it and figure out how you are able to accomplish this. Because I have been told your typical rent-to-own or lease option program has about a 5 to 15% on the high end um, rate of actually going through the whole process and, and actually converting ownership over, right? Whereas you guys are closer to the 80, 85%, that is almost the exact reverse. So how are you able to pull that off? It comes back to screening and getting with a lender. Because like the other programs out there, they don't require the the buyer to get with a lender. They might suggest it, but like we, we want to get the, the lender involved right off the bat. And the, have them actually, you know, help us gather docs um, and, and get that plan together. Um, it's funny because like buyers will want to skip that step. They're like, why do I have to talk to a lender? I know I can't get a loan. Like, this is very important. This is this is the the key to this working. So, this is so refreshing because I've had a lot of conversations with a lot of people that do this strategy. And most of the sentiments that I hear are they they don't want to do this process. They're actually happy the buyer's default. They're happy to take the property back after they made their profit and do it again and again and again and again. And while like I can understand if the only thing that matters to someone is making lots of money, why that would be appealing, like it doesn't leave a good feeling in my stomach knowing that they're intentionally setting people up for failure that are likely to fail. So to hear that your rates are flipped is like really encouraging. It's more of a model that I think I could engage in. You know, if you're taking 80 to 85% of the people you engage with that couldn't ever have the American dream or it would take forever and you're giving it to them early, like that is, that is a really cool thing. I like to sleep. Yeah. And, right. You know, right. Yes. Like I, I don't want to stress about putting somebody in a bad position. Like that's the opposite of the goal. Like I want to help people. Totally. So I want to dive in this a little bit further because I, you know, for several years, like four or five years, originated loans and do the real estate side. So I have an understanding of generally what Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac guidelines are and those types of things. So obviously they can't qualify under those guidelines now. How, how close are you looking for to know that it's probably going to work down long-term? I don't know how to put a number on that, but I mean, just like credit, you know, as long as it's fixable stuff, like, you know, Credit's a whole animal. Like it, it, it can be all sorts of reasons. You know, I've, I've looked at multiple page reports. Like that's, that's a huge red flag. Like they're just bad with money. And unless something major in their life's changed, like maybe they had a kid. Now they're like, oh, I got to get my shit together. Like that, that may change. But if they got that many pages of dings, it's probably going to be a while to get that fixed. Um, but if it's like the life happened to them, divorce or medical bills, that, that kind of thing, um, it's fixable and they're motivated. Like that's, we, we look at the whole story, you know, and figure out what, what, what it's going to take and give them plenty of time too. So like ideally it's all it is is time, you know, like Eric, the Minnesota deal, he just needed two full years. Um, so he was able, able to, to buy almost within, you know, a little over the 12 months. Um, that, that's my favorite cause it's, it's not complicated. Right. Um, so, 
So there's one thing I particularly love about this strategy. Like this is perfect for the market right now, right? Because there's so many high income people out there. They're, they're making good money, but due to COVID or some other unforeseen circumstance over the past two years, because who knows, like all the crazy stuff that's been happening over the last two years, everything's been totally unpredictable. There are so many people out there with high income, but no credit. So, I mean, this is a solution and it's not only a solution, but it's also, it's a low hanging fruit because your typical realtor out here, they're going to find these people. These people are going to reach out to them and they're going to be like, oh, I don't want to work with this guy. Terrible credit, can't do anything with you. So not only are you giving somebody that generally doesn't have a problem or a solution to their problem, a solution, but there's much less competition out there. Yeah, I, I've heard other experts say, "Oh, this is this is the time for for lease options," and it's true. Creative financing and the like. Yeah, I mean, this is a time where I think we're going to see traditional lending failing buyers even more as things change, and then obviously that opens a door for for solutions. Well, you know that reminds me. So, um, one of the other rent to own companies, big gorilla in the industry, they, they just up to, actually two of them bumped their minimum credit score from 580 up to 620. So they're tightening up too. Um, we have to be aware of that too. But again, like as long as we take a good look and see that it's fixable, you know, that's, that's important. And we, you know, we'll work with credit repair specialists if needed. Uh, most lenders have a good idea of what, what people need to do. Um, but if, special help is required. We have our resources. Yeah. That's so cool. Just serving the, the, the closest 10% that's not served. Yeah. So going back to the, the fit aspect. So now that we kind of understand a lot more about your model, the, the fit that you have, is it, is it based on like the, the fact that you get so much enjoyment from serving these buyers, like tell us like why this particular model versus another model. Yeah. Besides just the satisfaction, I think uh, like every deal is a little different and it keeps that creative part of my brain going. Cause like that's what I came from a creative industry as a, a designer, solving problems, writing, you know, copy and the visual, you know, challenge of, creating something that connected with, you know, end buyers and, and got that message out like that, that part of my brain is kind of being engaged. That's, that's what I thought I would really miss getting out of that creative industry, but this is creative in just a different way. So I don't get bored. (laughs) That's, that's a problem. Yeah. (laughs) Or it could be a problem, but it's not for me. (laughs) Love that. Yeah. Boredom, boredom is a, is a tough problem for me. So like yeah. I obviously want to be fully present and fully engaged in the businesses. So I, I make adaptations to, to keep myself fully in the game. So yeah, I think that's a very viable thing. Um, all right. Awesome, James. So like, what is your vision over like the next 12 to 18 months? What, what are you guys going to be doing? What are you guys building? What are your plans? Like how big do you want to grow this? Um, give me an idea. Just kind of getting our, our lead flow up and processes in place. We're, we're always tweaking stuff um, and hiring on some people to help, you know, do more deals. Um, like I said, we, I'm in Colorado, but 
we've done most of our deals out of state, so we, we can do it pretty much anywhere. It's more challenging in higher end markets. Um, so it's easier as purchase prices go, go down as you go into the Midwest, you know, that, that opens it up for more investors that, you know, might not be able to buy a place in California, but you know, Minnesota or Florida, like, oh, okay, I can do that. <laughs> um, so yeah, you know, building, building that flow. Um, and I know there's going to be a lot of agents on this listening. So if you run across tenant buyers, we can help investors. Um, lenders love this model because both they, they can get the loan at, you know, for the tenant buyer at the end, but they can also get the loan for the investor up front because most of our investors just get a loan. They put down their 20% and um, although they get that 10% back, from from that tenant buyer, which allows them to do two deals at a time. So the investor likes that. They can do two instead of one. The lender's getting two loans or more. And when they turn in, you know, a year, two, three, the investor's ready for another. And so everybody's turning and, and moving the cycle. Doing well. Yeah. yeah. You're creating yeah. win, 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 win. You said five wins, right? Yeah. In yeah. particular, and I, I bet you, if you have, if you're really strategic in the relationships that you build, like obviously these lenders are turning people away every day. You call these lenders up, it's like, hey, you get one of these people, send them my way. I mean, it's just, it's a perfect way to grow a business, man. I mean, it makes a ton of sense. I love it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So agents listening should be like call, calling their lender. I've got like a shareable graphic that they could share out with lenders and other agents in their group and potential tenant buyers that, you know, go back through the database of people that you weren't able to help as an agent. Maybe there's some gold in there. You can help them now. So when you're buying properties on the MLS, are you buying them at market value, 10% below? What are you shooting for? Yeah. I mean, we're competing against other, other primary home buyers. So it's going to be your standard market market rate, you know, but the number numbers work out. It's, it's nice because prices and, you know, it's becoming more of a buyer's market. That'll make it a lot easier on us, you know? So do you guys have the end buyer sign with the investor before closing? So the investor feels super safe in there or do you close and then look for an end buyer? Yeah, we get, get things signed. The option fees, you know, wired typically to the investor at least before the end of the inspection period because that's kind of the last point that the they can get out right um so we don't want to end up in that position and we'll verify like that they've got the money what's cool too like a lender they need that a down payment sourced and seasoned right like showing that they've got that money in the bank um in our case we don't care you know they can have that gifted or whatever um, as long as they show that they've got the money and we're, we feel comfortable that they're going to be able to, to give that to the investor. Um, and then once the investor's got it, then it's being sourced and seasoned, you know, for when they do get their loan. And are investors typically buying these cash or are they buying them with traditional financing? Traditional financing, 20% down. Um, you know, I've got an investor. He's been using his HELOC. 
to buy places in the Midwest. He can pay, pay cash, but immediately puts financing on it. But it helps to lock up the deal. You know, it's just a stronger offer. Mm-hmm. But even then, 20%, yeah, that makes sense. 20% down is still stronger than, you know, an FHA or VA buyer. So it's kind of an advantage even even at that. So I guess just kind of running through the numbers if I'm an investor, because we work a ton with investors. And so they'll have uh, essentially, I'm sure they'll have tons of questions on this. So they put 20%, let's say they pay cash and then immediately get 80% back. They're getting a 10% down. So they're 10% out still. Is that fair to say? Okay, so the, let's say the property, what would you say your average price, uh, purchase price would be in, in a model like this? You know, between two fifty and and six fifty. Okay, so maybe we'll go four hundred uh, for easy numbers. Mm-hmm. So they'll be out forty grand, and they'll be getting be math involved. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> As a math major, I can't help it. Uh, and hopefully, this will be good because if people want to invest in this type of model, hopefully, this will illustrate that for them. So, essentially, they're going to have forty thousand out of pocket once they get the money back, maybe plus some closing costs or whatnot. And so they're going to be getting a spread on the rents, maybe of a couple hundred dollars a month or so, I'm guessing. But then they're also going to get this appreciation chart. So they're going to get 6% of the purchase price, which when you correlate that to how much they have out, so if they have 10% out of pocket, but they're getting 6% on the purchase price, yeah, I guess it, it still is a fairly sizable return. Um yeah, I'm just trying to calculate that real quick, but um, we can move on to the next question. But what, I, what I'd like to do, maybe we'll put it in the show notes, Tim, is kind of calculate what that return, or maybe you have some numbers on that, James, is like what type of returns do these investors typically get? Because I mean, that might help as you look to grow grow some money and do this more you know, on, on scale. You know, it's funny because like, I, I usually don't like to throw numbers out because people are like, what? How could that be? But you know, we're typically getting 30, 40% in year one, and it goes up from there. ROI. Now that's calculating everything in how much money's being paid, paid out. Um, it doesn't, doesn't calculate that manu- uh, maintenance and repairs are being handled by the, the buyer. Like you can't really put a, a number on that, but you think about like a regular rental where, you're either having to self-manage or paying eight or 10% out of your profit. You know, in this case, you don't have to worry about that. You know, some things may come up, you know, big, big ticket items, but insurance and, and maybe a home warranty can cover that. But uh, that's, that's a big, big thing that's not in the spreadsheet, you know, that, that you need to consider. Um, and that, that, that's why like, this is a good model for people that are busy professionals. They know there's power in real estate investing, but they just don't have the time or, you know, the drive to figure it all out and put deals together. Um, you know, they might go buy a rental the traditional way, put their 20% down and maybe self-manage or pay, you know. Um, so this is a, a much more profitable way and less brain damage way to do it. But then you have your tired landlords that have already gone through the calls in the middle of the night, you know, and people, you know, that don't care about their property like that. They're the ones that, that really get this. They're like, 
and it's funny because like um, one of the guys I, I run this big Facebook group with, I, I asked him at one point, I'm like, hey, can I post a deal on this group uh, before I, I knew him? And he's like, well, what, what's this deal all about? And I explained it and he's like, I want to, I think I want to try that. And so we got him a screaming deal where he's cash flowing probably double what Denver normally would be um, and no maintenance and repairs. And after we closed, went and had a beer together. He's like talking about, I thought he was talking about buying some other regular rental, but I, I, I misread what he was saying. He's like, no, no, I, I want to do one of these deals. It's like, why would I ever do a regular rental again? <laughs> so I'm like, ah, he gets it now. Totally. Yeah. So, so, go ahead, Tim. <laughs> so what I really love about this model, in particular in, in your position in this model, this sounds like almost the lowest risk real estate investment place you can be in because essentially you're just a middleman it's like the wholesaler is pretty minimal risk right as long as you're following the due diligence period and stuff like that but like this i mean there's no risk at all because if the house doesn't close you don't get paid so i mean if it doesn't close that means that something wrong happened during the inspection period so i mean there's literally no risk on your part right i mean you're just making connections yeah yep playing the middleman and you know i'm not with this model i'm not there's no passive income coming in either so that's the downside unless i'm the investor but i can be the investor on any of these deals too so um yeah in fact our, our last deal it was an agent that was the investor um he gets it he does a lot of flips very active income thing but he really likes this in fact we just had another one pop up in in minnesota he's like i'll take that one too <laughs> so <laughs> take them all <laughs> So the real risk the investor faces is a non-performance of a buyer that trashes the house. And so essentially they, you know, they don't pay the rents and then you have to evict them. And then, I mean, it's less likely because you're screening them well, they have the option money. So it's way less likely, but when it happens, maybe they're really upset because they're like, look, I put 10% down and they recognize they're not going to be able to purchase this thing. And so they go savage on it. That's, I would imagine that's, probably the the risk that the investor is taking is you know maybe having to to repair a house that someone you know breaks the drywall does crazy stuff to it have you had any i mean of the non-performing people have you had any issues so far never had anything like that knock on wood but yeah i mean knock on wood yeah i it's never happened and i know jesse or you know our guy in minnesota he's been doing this he was a lender for 15 years and got into this and so he's been doing this about 10 years. Hasn't had anything major like that. So. Yeah. And and so maybe somebody investing just knows that that's a possibility. So they have maybe a little bit more reserves. Maybe they have a connection to a foreclosure attorney or whatever they would need to do just in case. But I mean, like, Eviction. I'm just trying to think through. No foreclosure. Unless. We oh, could. yeah. Because they don't own it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now, yeah. we can't do and won't do contract for deed seller financing here in Colorado. Um, other states allow it. Um, so that's another option, but yeah, this is just a lease. So it'd be an eviction. Um, should be, this is no, in that case, it's no different than a, a regular rental, but in this case, you've got some insurance money where a regular rental, you got a security deposit, you know, 
And if you get the house back, it's the same, all the same options that a regular landlord has. Find another renter, find another tenant buyer that has money down or sell it. You know, you've, it's all the same, same exit strategies that you would have. Yeah, but it is a little bit better because you're saying that the tenant is responsible for the repairs. So, I mean, that actually takes a huge workload off. So, I mean, it is definitely a little bit better for the investor. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, cool, James. I mean, if the audience, anybody listening right now, anybody, agents, maybe potential sellers that want to get this sweet deal or or maybe there's a buyer out there or a potential buyer, like what is the best way for them to reach out to you? I'll just go to our website, um, realhomesolutions.org, O-R-G. Um, we've got a, for like agents and lenders, we've got a power partners page. They can go put their info in there and, and reach out. Um, I've also got a CE class that goes over, it's just Colorado agents get credit, but the, the information applies, um, anywhere that I can give. And I'm going to actually record that as well. Um, so we don't have to schedule it, but, um, I'll, I'll be posting that on, on there too. Absolutely fantastic. All that information will be in the show notes. So, I mean, James, I'll, I'll connect with you and make sure to get all the correct links. Um, James Brown, man, I'm really excited to have you on the show. I'm really pumped that you offered us a glimpse to see your business and what you're doing. Um, and to everybody else out there chasing freedom, freedom's acquired simply one action at a time. So if you do nothing else, please take one action and make sure to do it within the next seven days and tell somebody you know that can hold you accountable and before you know it, you too will be living a life of freedom. So thank you, everybody, for listening, and we'll catch you on the next one. Please like, comment, share, and subscribe. Engagement is like gold to us. We can't do what we're doing without it. Reviews and subscriptions, particularly on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube, are worth more than money. So please do what you can to support the show. 